I'm also excited just to share a little bit of God's Word with you, and I, I really believe that um, as I was studying early on, actually last week, uh, kind of towards the end of last week for this week, I just really felt very confident in uh, what God was placing up on my heart, and I really believe it is something that uh, will speak to all of us, uh, because uh, we're going to address an experience that I think most of us have gone through in our lives, and that is the experience of unmet expectations. If you have lived in this world for more than five minutes, you've probably experienced a time or season in your life where you were let down or perhaps your hopes might have been crushed or shattered. And so this morning, my hope is that in this passage that we'll look at, it will encourage you and it'll give you hope for what God is doing in the midst of shattered expectations. Now, we can all have um, shattered expectations in various areas of our lives. Um, uh, perhaps your uh, disappointments or your expectations have not been met in the areas of your career. Oftentimes, we, especially if you've gone to college or you get out of high school, you're in this season of life where you have all these goals and these expectations of what your life might look like and what your career might look like. And oftentimes, it isn't what we expect, and that can be a bit of a disappointment. Or uh, another area in which we might find um, a disappointment or unmet expectations is in the area of relationships. We have this vision of how things are going and where everything's at, and then all of a sudden, beyond our control, things begin to fall apart. We all have areas in our lives, whether it's parenthood or being a parent or not wanting to be a parent and then and that happening, all of those things can be areas of unmet or shattered expectations. And so my hope and my encouragement for you this morning is that in the midst of this story that we're about to read, um, it will bring the hope and the encouragement that God is working in the midst of your life right now. And so if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, um, we're going to read from a book that you probably don't read very often from, and that's the book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to read the first nine verses, and I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version. All right, um, Haggai 2 verse 1 starts, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. For this is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. 
Lord, thanks for your word and just the timeliness and the relevance to our lives. And I pray this morning as we just kind of dig into this passage that you would speak to all of our hearts, Lord, wherever we might fall today in the areas of expectations and disappointments. Lord, I pray that you would encourage, that you would build faith today in all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to give a little bit of background here into this passage because you may not be familiar with the book of Haggai. Um, And actually, it's really one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's actually only two chapters. So if you want to read a whole book of the Bible today, you can just grab your Bible and read Haggai in two chapters. And um, in these two chapters, though, they parallel stories that are taking place in other parts of Scripture. Um, so, um, in Ezra, it kind of tells, the book of Ezra, it kind of tells a little bit of what's going on. We also learn in, like, in the Kings and Chronicles a little bit about what's going on. And then there's also another prophet. So, Haggai is a prophet that's kind of ministering to the people of Israel in this season. And there's another prophet that has a, a book called Zechariah who also ministers um, in this season or in this time in Israel's history. Um, and I just kind of want to add a little context to what's going on and what they're speaking to um, and what the people of Israel are feeling in this season. So the people of Israel at this time um, are kind of just leaving or transitioning out of a season of exile. Can I get real nerdy and technical with you because this is just kind of who I am and and it's just going to happen anyway, so I'm sorry, I'm not even going to ask, I'm just going to go. All right, so in the year 586, maybe 587, the people of Israel kind of have been divided up into this point into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're like relatives, they're sister, brother nations, whatever you want to call them. They kind of operate independent of each other. But previously, uh, a while back, that northern kingdom of Israel had been captured and brought into captivity. And the southern kingdom was kind of arrogant about this. They, and, and the reason that they fell into captivity is God would send prophets to them, and they had been living in rebellion against God. A lot of it had to do with the worship of the other gods of the surrounding peoples. And so they would incorporate the worship of these other gods into their own worship. And the northern kingdom was sent prophets, and they were told, hey, repent of this, and God will, you know, will bless you, but if you don't, judgment is coming. And the entire history of that northern kingdom, they never repented, and they continued to walk in their ways. And so year after year after year of prophet after prophet, they continued in their own sin, and so God allowed judgment to take place, and so that northern kingdom was conquered. And so the southern kingdom, though, kind of was arrogant about it because they were like, oh, that won't happen to us. And the reason it won't happen is because we have Jerusalem, which is God's holy city. And in Jerusalem, there's the temple, which is God's temple. So God would never allow that to happen to us. Now, in the southern kingdom, there was a slight difference. So they were sent prophets in the same manner, and they had also been sinning and incorporating the worship of other gods as well. But every once in a while, God would raise up a godly leader or king to these people who would actually bring them back to God. So they would actually repent of their sins, and they would remove the worship of these other gods and serve and worship the one true God in the temple alone. But that would only happen for a generation. So when the next king would rise up, they would actually go back to the practice of incorporating these other gods into their worship. So after a continued cycle of this going on and on and on, God finally allowed judgment to take place to the southern kingdom. And that happened in about the year 586 or 87 BC. So this is almost 600 years before Christ shows up on the scene. 
And the nation of Babylon, which is like kind of found in Iraq today, like the leaders of the Babylonian Empire had come in and now had conquered the Jewish people. They had sacked Jerusalem and they literally destroyed the temple. Now this temple was again the most valuable thing to the Jewish people because in the temple there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or you know anything about Jewish history, the Ark of the Covenant was where God's people believed his presence resided. They actually had the broken tablets that Moses had of the Ten Commandments in there. Um, and if you remember the staff of Aaron that budded little roses, if you know that story, that was also in there. And in there they believed that God's presence dwelled within that ark. And that ark sat within the temple in the most holy and sacred place of the temple. And so when the Babylonians come in, they not only conquer the city, they destroy the most valuable thing to the people, the temple, which they viewed as their conduit to God himself. And it was gone. And so not only that, but the Babylonians began to do something. And if you know the stories of some, some of the stories of the Old Testament, like of Daniel or the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all were in this season. They were taken from their land and brought to Babylon and kind of like they began to, to um, basically pull the smartest and the brightest people of the Hebrew children into the, their nation. And they did it for multiple reasons. They said, these are their smart people. These are their leaders. And if we keep their leaders, we'll have control of them. In addition to that, they were hoping that within a generation of two, that those that came with them as those, and also those that were left behind would um, essentially begin to lose their identity as Hebrew people. They would begin to intermarry with the other peoples, and the purpose would be so that they would begin to see themselves as either Babylonians, or eventually what happened was the Babylonians actually fell to the neighboring Persians, and so they continued that practice, and the whole idea was, well, if they lose their identity as Hebrew children, they won't worship their God anymore, they won't see themselves as different than us, and they won't rebel. So what happened was, though, when the Persians took over, though, there was a king, uh, and his name is Cyrus. When he overtook the Babylonian Empire, he actually took great pride and interest in the people that he conquered and their religions. And so he began in his time to allow the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem. His whole idea was the complete opposite. He thought, well, I'll let them back in. I'll let them worship however they want to worship. And by doing so, they'll like me and they won't rebel. And so we kind of enter into this season now where he's starting to allow them to come back to the city of Jerusalem with the purpose and the funding to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And so the scriptures tell us that this guy named Zerubbabel, great name, right? Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David, was kind of like seen as the political leader of the Jewish people. And so um, Cyrus appointed him kind of like as governor over the Jewish people. So kind of like his person in charge over there. But Zerubbabel and this guy named Joshua, who was the high priest. So the priesthood continued, like the, the religious leaders of the Jewish people continued while they were in exile. They had continued to identify who their, their religious leaders were. And it was passed on from generation to generation. So this guy, Zerubbabel and Joshua, are kind of seen as the leaders of the Jewish people on this mission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And it tells us that approximately 50,000 Jewish people returned or descended back into Jerusalem. And two of those 50,000 were most likely Haggai, who's, who's writing this book and preaches kind of like four sermons to them in this season, and this other guy named Zechariah, who's also the prophet. All right, so there's our kind of our context, right? They're building the temple, but in the midst of building this temple, the people kind of get distracted. 
and because they realize this is a hard project, and also they're kind of trying to reestablish themselves and their culture back in their land. And so what some of the people start to do at first is kind of neglect the temple and start to focus on their own homes. So they're like, all right, I'm going to build a home for my own family so when the rest of my family comes, we'll have a spot here in Jerusalem. And so they start to focus solely on what's theirs first. And so God first sends in chapter 1 of Haggai, Haggai to, to teach them and preach to them and say, hey, look, in the midst of all of this, you guys are neglecting what God has called us to do first. You're focusing on your own needs and your own desires, and you're kind of really being selfish. And so he calls them to go back to the purpose in which they came, which is to reestablish the temple. All right? So they begin to kind of go, and they actually build the temple. Uh, they kind of build the structure so they can start to have worship again. But at this point, and this is kind of where we find ourselves in chapter 2, they begin to get a little discouraged. So it's been probably anywhere from 50 to 60 years kind of in that window when they've kind of started to reestablish this temple from when they left. And so many of the people might have been children when they left Jerusalem or, or their, maybe their parents were the ones that left Jerusalem. And, and whether they saw firsthand the first temple or they were told stories about it from their parents, they recognized that this second temple didn't measure up to the glory of the first temple. Now, if you go back into the history of the Jewish people, Solomon was the one that built the temple for God and for the people. And Solomon, and during his reign as king over all of the united Israel, he actually had the greatest political and religious impact. And actually, the kingdom of Israel actually was at its largest and at its peak under his reign. And you may have heard all the stories about his wealth and all his concubines and all his women. And the guy had resources, and so he invested them. And it literally says that the temple shimmered with gold, and it was huge, and it was grand. And it was actually the queen of Sheba that came up to see Solomon in his wisdom and to see the temple. So like it was in its glory days. And so now the children of Israel have come back to build this temple and reestablish it, and it kind of just pales in comparison to either what they've seen as children or to maybe what their parents talked about. And they begin to get discouraged, and they begin to actually lose the passion for what God has continued to call them to, because the project wasn't completely done. Yes, the four walls were up. Yes, they could have worship, but God had called them to do more. And so here comes Haggai, and he gives them, this is his second sermon or his second message in the midst of the season. And he calls them to say, hey, look, you guys are talking about, and you're thinking about all these glory days of what the temple used to be. He said, but, ha what is he says, but now he says in verse 4, he says, you guys remember this, and it's nothing like, right? He's kind of asking these rhetorical questions of them to cause them to think and to, to examine where they're at. But in verse 4, he says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel. So he first speaks to the political leader of the people. And then he says to the priest, right, you be strong as well, Joshua, son of Josedek. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. You know, a lot of people amongst the, the Israel people, the people of Israel in this time, they began to compare God's presence and God's blessing on their lives by what the temple looked like. Well, God must have been with our ancestors because look how glorious the temple was and all the wealth and the riches. And, and, and they, were, they were kind of guilty, I think, of what humanity is always guilty of. You might call it the lie or the myth of the good old days. The belief that the things were better in the past, in the days gone by. And we all have this tendency within our human experience to romanticize 
days gone by. People politically, religiously, culturally, they always think, oh, it was way better when I was a kid, and yada, 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 yada. And they tend to glorify the way things used to be. And when we have this tendency to do this, we tend to focus on what we're lacking and what we're missing. Or we also, when we look back, we also have this tendency, if we're honest with ourselves, to forget about all the hardships of the old days. And we only focus on the good things that took place. And we're all, it's, it's, it's the human condition. We lose perspective because we don't feel that pain anymore, and we only remember the victories that came out of that pain. And even though this is something that the, the exiles' ancestors, oh, let me just back up and say, this is not the first time, though, that the Jewish people were guilty of this sin. You may remember the story of the Exodus when God used Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. And they're celebrating, all right? They've been enslaved for over 400 years. They've cried out almost the entire time that they're enslaved for God to deliver them. And he raises up Moses, who delivers them and brings them free from Pharaoh's hand. They have this supernatural, miraculous escape where the waters of the Red Sea part. They walk through, it says, on dry land, and then the waves come crashing down to destroy Pharaoh's armies. And then immediately, as they begin this journey to their promised land, as they begin on this quest, they don't realize that it's going to be a lot longer than they had expected. The scriptures tell us that it took 40 years for them of wandering in the wilderness because in the midst of that wilderness or desert season, God was refining their faith and their trust in him. But in the midst of this, many of them got discouraged, and they began to complain to Moses about their life. Now, this is weird to me, because as I look back on it, now, obviously, I'm not walking on this journey with them, but, but as I look back on it, like, miracles are happening. Moses is hitting rocks and waters coming out so they can drink. Like, magical Jesus bread is falling from the sky so that they can eat every day. I mean, like, all these things are happening, and amidst it, they start complaining, and they start longing for the day's of their capture in Egypt. And in Exodus 13, 3, they say to Moses, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted, but you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They have forgotten. They're, like, they're beginning to romanticize enslavement. And to long for the days of being held captive to Pharaoh because at least they had meat and they could sit around and enjoy good meat instead of this lousy Jesus bread. The exiles in the day of Haggai were guilty of the same. Comparing what God wanted to do now with what God had done in the past. Their expectations from the past they placed upon God and in the present situation that they were living in. And when they couldn't reconcile what the new temple looked like and what worship might look like today with what they had hoped for, these promises built on past expectations, they stopped all work on the temple. And how often are we as the people of God guilty of comparing our current situation to a romanticized, mythical version of our own pasts, thinking about what was instead of what God is doing in the here and now. Uh, author Mark Twain has a great quote on comparison, and he says, comparison is the death of joy. 
The people of Israel in this season were comparing their current situations to a mythical and romanticized path. And I think in our own lives, whether it's false expectations maybe that we've had that are kind of rooted in, in, a, in a mythology that we have created, or maybe we look back and we ignore kind of all the struggles and the difficulties, but we only see the good things about the past, we can be guilty of the same and miss out on what God wants to do in our lives today. We think back to all those struggles that God brought us through, and we think, why can't God just do it like that again? Why doesn't God do what he did in the past? And the reality is, God doesn't do what he did in the past in order for him to do what he wants to do in the present today. You know, the miracles of our past are not the miracles that we need today. The miracles of today are different and new, and God wants to do something new and different in our lives as individuals and as a community. And for that to take place, we can't look back, but we've got to look forward to what God is doing in the here and now. We don't want the comparison of our past, whether they be individual or corporate, to kill the joy of what God wants to do in our lives today. God is with us in our seasons of disappointment, discouragement, and shattered expectations. We see this in our passage in verse, verse 4. Listen to the words that, that God gives Haggai to the leaders and to the people of Israel. He says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. He's telling them to be strong where they're at right now. He says, be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. In the midst of the circumstances that we face in our lives today, God wants you and I to know that he is with us, that he hasn't abandoned us. He goes on to say in verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. God has this tendency throughout Israel's history to always remind them of what he did. And he doesn't do this to say, okay, I'm going to do that again. But he's saying, as faithful as I was back then, I will be faithful now. And this is why it's not... It's not a negative thing to look back on what God has done. That should be a faith-building moment and experience, but we don't dwell or live in that past experience because if we do, we end up missing out on what God wants to do today in our lives. This is what I covenant. So God's saying, like, I hitched myself to you back in Egypt. I, I partnered with you, and I promised to give you what you need. And in the same way that I did it back then, I'm going to do it now. The second half of verse 5 says, and my spirit remains with you. Do not fear. Like two things here. God's spirit is with us. God's spirit's with you right now where you're at in the midst of maybe shattered expectations and broken dreams. God is with you. His spirit is always with you. When God hitched himself to us through Jesus Christ, we can't break free of that. He hitches himself to us and he promises to always be with. Whether we see it, whether it looks like he's with us or not, we know because his word is true and God does not lie that when he says he is with us, he is with us. And so we, we hold fast to that. And I love that second part. He says, do not fear. You know, oftentimes we think that fear um, is rooted in all these other different things. But the reality is, I think, for the life of the believer, fear is rooted in a, in a distrust of God or a lack of faith. So, like, we often think that doubt is, like, the corresponding opposite of faith. Like, so you either have faith or you have doubt, but in reality, when we're lacking faith, we don't respond with doubt. Because doubt, I, I would argue that you can't even really have faith without doubt. 
They really work hand in hand. But when we truly reject faith, what we see is fear because it's rooted in insecurity. But the person that understands that their identity and their promise and their future is in God's hands, yes, you may have doubts, you may have insecurities, but the reality is you won't fear because you understand that God is with you. This is what God is encouraging the Hebrew people with through the prophet Haggai, and I believe that this is what he's wanting to encourage us with today, is that we can, we can certainly have moments of doubt and certainly have moments of insecurity, but God's wanting to move us to this place of trust and not to let fear and insecurity overtake us, but to have our identity and our hopes not build in the past. Yes, we draw strength and encouragement for what God has done in the past, but we look to what God is doing now. And see, what happens if we focus so much on our situation, we end up being like the, the people of Israel here. They lost focus and they stopped working on what God had called them to do. And I think that we become guilty of that too when we start looking at our surroundings. As we start to lose focus on what God has called us to do and it becomes like a secondary thought to us. And so I don't know what God is calling you to do in your life right now, like with your, your expectations and your hopes about life. But I do believe that God wants you to refocus on what he has called you to do. And a lot of people, when they, they are, are struggling, like with discerning God's will, I always bring them back to this question. What is the last thing that God told you to do? Ask yourself, maybe even pause in this very moment and reflect upon that. What is the last thing that God asks you to do? And I would encourage you and I would challenge you to stay focused on that until he tells you to do something else. And this is what it means to be people of faith. Because even though the circumstances we face right now or the disappointments that we even face right now may not seem very encouraging, as long as we remain faithful to the task that God has called us to, he will be with us. And he will bring about the miracle that we need in our lives today. And I encourage you in that, not just as an individual, but as we corporately together move forward as a community of believers. What is the last thing that God has called us as a community to do? That is where our focus needs to be. That is where our efforts need to be. That is what God has called us to do. And so we will stay focused on that until God leads us in a different direction. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter if the past in our mind seems greater than our present situation. What God wants to do now today isn't the same thing that he did three weeks ago, much less three months ago or three years ago. But what God wants to do today is new. And so what we do is we do our part. What he's asked us to do in this very moment until he leads us in a different way. And then what we do is we wait for his miracle right? Like the miracles don't happen because of our efforts. They happen in God's timing and in his will, and it is his efforts, right? It's not human efforts that bring about it. God used a foreign king to open the door and to fund the rebuilding of his temple because he was more interested in establishing a place of worship than even the people of Israel. God's more interested in the future of what dwell will be than we are. And like a lot of us have bought full in, right? I'm moving across the country to be a part of what God is doing here at Dwell. But it isn't about what I'm doing. I just have to be faithful to what God is calling me to do. And in the same part, God is calling each one of us to play a role in that responsibility. And as we partner in faithfulness, and we do, because that's what faithfulness is, is not just being there. That's part of it. But like faithfulness for the believer is trusting that God's doing what he wants to do. 
that he's called me to do this, and even if it looks like it's going in the opposite direction of what, what God wants to do, I will do it because he's asked me to do it. I trust that he is wiser than me, that he knows more than me, that he is bringing about his will in what I am doing. And as I remain faithful to what he has called me to do, he will do the rest. Like, here, here's my practical thing. Like, all week long, I've been looking. I've been looking. I've been looking for homes, and I've been seeing places. And some are like, eh, not going to work. Others have been like, it'll work. I just need about five more thousand dollars a month for it to work. <laughs> and so, like, it's like all these things. And so, about the middle of the week, I found a place, and it was a little bit more than I thought what we could afford. But we're like, all right, well, we can do this, and we can do that. We can rent our home back in Kentucky. We can do all these different things. And, I, I th and I, the connection with the guy was, like, he lives in, like, the, the Jefferson Park area, and he worked for the city of Santa Monica. I was like, oh, that's cool. He's, he's a younger guy. He's a little younger than me, but a younger guy that's married and has a little girl. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm married and have a, and he has a dog, and his dog breed is just the same mix that ours is. He's got a pit bull boxer mix. We got a pit bull boxer. And he's like, you know, I was really thinking, you know, he's not, a, at least as far as I know, a person of faith, but he's like, you know, I was really thinking this home would be ideal for a, for a small family with a dog. We really hope, because this, this place is great for a dog. And he's like, oh, look where my dog chewed up and all this other kind of stuff. We'll fix it. He's like, but he understands our dog and our dog breed. And I'm like, oh, this is all cool. And like, everything's lining up. And so I'm waiting now. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm like, all right. He's like, cool. And he, he calls me. He's like, all right. Like, everything was set up. We can do a, a December 1 move-in. And I'm hanging out with Gabe and Casey and their wives on, on, on Thursday night? Thursday night. And he's like, hey, can I call you? And I'm like, all right. He calls me. He's like, hey, um, we, we, we want to offer the place to you guys. It's awesome. But um, can we do a January 1 move-in? And I'm like, all right. All right. Hold on. I really felt like God was in this. I was like, all right, let me talk to my wife. Let me talk to the board. I'll get back to you. He's like, okay. So then I tell him the next day, I was like, I talked to Gabe, I talked to Annie, I talked to Kylie. I'm like, they're like, yeah, let's, you know, it's not ideal. We want to be here, like tomorrow, but, but it's not ideal, but we really felt like God is in this, and the board has been supportive, and so I'm like, okay, okay, and so I text the guy, I was like, yeah, January 1's looking good, um, and he knows that I'm leaving town on Monday evening on a red eye. You know, I told him I want to lock this up. He's like, all right, no problem, I'll get you the lease tomorrow, all right? Friday comes, no, this was Friday, so two Saturday comes, it's five o'clock in the evening, I still don't have a lease, and so I'm like, all right, I send him a text, it's like, hey, just checking to make sure uh, that I didn't miss the lease, you know, I just want to make sure, blah, 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 he's like, oh, sorry about that, I'll get you it tonight, I'm like, all right, all right, so I keep working on my message a little bit more, I'm wrapping up, checking my email, nothing, nothing, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to bed, I'm trusting the Lord. I wake up this morning, no lease. I'm like, all right. All right, I get in the shower, and I'm like, all right. And I'm just praying. I'm like, all right, Lord. I just, I'm like, I'm trusting you. I was like, all right, if this doesn't work out, God, I know that you're working. I know that you're working. I'm trusting you. This is not like ideal, but I'm trusting you. I tell, I tell Gabe this, you know, when I get in, I still no lease. I'm just telling you, just where I'm at. We're sitting here in worship, and the lease pops in in my inbox. All right. <laughs> so it's not signed yet, but it's like we're right there. We're right there. Like the other, on Saturday, I was so prepared. I was like, I'm going to the bank. I'm getting my cashier's check. I'm doing this in faith, you know. Whew. All right. God's at work, friends. You know, even though we don't always see him, we don't always, you know, recognize. And it looks like it's like things are falling. God's at work. And I want to encourage you. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't. You know, I'm getting to know some of you, and I still don't know. That's cool. I don't need to know because I know that God knows where you're at in your life. And he knows what you need more than even you know what you need. So, like, let me, let me give you just, like, two things. And then, actually, um, 
Paul, if you want to come on up, I want to just give you a couple things that you can do um, to like help you practically apply this to your life. Like, first of all, maybe maybe more than two, if you give me a second. All right. First of all, like manage your expectations, right? Strive to set realistic expectations of yourselves and others, and even of God. Stretch yourself, right? Like it's not like do limiting things. Stretch yourself in these things and set set goals and expectations that are attainable, but know ultimately the final outcome is beyond your control. Right? I think this is a big thing that all of us have to recognize. We have to recognize and accept that there are things that are within our control and there are things that are outside of our control. And we need to accept that fact. Excuse me. We can't control everything or everyone, and so we need to stop trying to. And we need to trust God with these expectations and with these realities. Now, the things that are within your control, control them, right? Do them. Like we, with the Holy Spirit's help, can control our emotions, our words, our actions, our thoughts. And we need to stop viewing ourselves as victims of our circumstances and take ownership of our own lives back to work on what we can work on with the Holy Spirit's help. So in the midst of these trials and these expectations, what are the things that God's asking us to take a hold of and take control of? Let's do that. And surround yourself with positive, uplifting, faith-filled people that are interested in helping you grow in the midst of the situation that you live in. Not only will you feel better, but you will actually do better, and you will have more fun along the way. Following Jesus can be really, really fun if you let it be. Let go of control this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to be the one that guides and leads you. Amen. We're going to worship. Paul's going to lead us. And as he does, if you just need prayer or to talk, come on by. If not, I'll talk to you after service.